Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be together, to look into your word. And I pray that you would prepare our hearts, that uh, you would help us identify any areas of sin that we might confess and be right before you, that we would be ready to receive your word and to allow it to do its work in our hearts. Lord, I thank you for what you've shared in your word that we'll look at today. And I pray that you would be greatly glorified in our responses We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you're aware or not, but the last statistic I saw for the murder rate in in, uh, America was 16,000 murders per year. That's a lot of murder. That's uh, a little over 40 murders a day. And that doesn't even include uh, self-murder, i.e. suicide, um, or even the murder of the unborn, abortion. Apart from that, 16,000 murders a year. And if you look at it, you think America's bad. Well, we're the fifth uh, worst in the nation, or in the nation, in the world for murders, uh, with uh, not to be outdone by South Africa, Colombia, Russia, and then the worst being India. The reality is mankind is a murderous people. Now, these statistics give us a look at the outward action of murder, But yet, we're going to see today that every one of us, apart from Christ, are murderers at heart. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26 and continue our little break from our series in 2 Peter. And, you know, often when I'm sick or I have a cold and the Lord rearranges my week, I'm praying, Lord, what do you want me to preach? Is there something else that you want me to share? And I'm always willing to do whatever he wants me to do. And I felt that we needed to be reminded of the realities of the matters of the heart. Now, in terms of Matthew chapter 5, in this portion, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew is about Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Matthew is about God the Son who took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to his own people, came to the Jewish people, those who would name his name, they would name the Lord's name, And they were in sin, sitting in darkness. And Jesus graciously, having had the way prepared by John the Baptist, uh, called upon the people to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And Jesus taught and preached the kingdom and affirmed that reality with the miraculous. And it's in this section that we call, on the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, we find ourselves today. Now the Sermon on the Mount... The Sermon on the Mount contains a kingdom righteousness presented by the king, which confronts phony righteousness. You see, in this time, there were the Jews who thought they were right with the Lord, and they had a righteousness, but it was not a righteousness that came from a relationship with God. And the living God who came wanted to confront that so that people would see where their hearts are really at. Now, in this Sermon on the Mount, we have Jesus beginning with the Beatitudes, those blessed are statements, which describe those who are truly blessed, those who have a relationship with the living God, those who are living lifestyles of the kingdom of heaven because they are in the kingdom of heaven. They are in the kingdom because they have been redeemed and are following the king. Now, within that, the Lord reveals, uh, after those Beatitudes, that true believers are salt and light in a sin-sick, dark world. Uh, When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when someone is truly saved, delivered from darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, 
we are now flavored with the true righteousness of Christ in the midst of a corrupt world. As we trust and obey Jesus Christ, his righteousness will be manifest in you and I. We are the salt of the world. We are the light of the world. Uh, We are those in the manifestation of the light and life of Christ in this world. Then after revealing who is truly blessed in the kingdom and our relationship to the world, salt and light, at this point Jesus moves to describing uh, his or the foundation for kingdom living, which is himself and his word, which he fulfills. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the word. And then within that, he made it clear that unless those who were listening's righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless it was even greater than those who appeared to be so righteous on the outside. And so with this in mind, we're going to see today that King Jesus begins to address misconceptions of those who thought they were right with God. And he addresses those things because those things are a matter of the heart. The first one he's going to address is the misconception of the idea of murder. Let's take a look, and we're going to look at verses 21 through 26. Uh, Jesus says, You have heard the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while uh, while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. Now, in this section, in verse 21 up to verses 48, we have six similar statements that Jesus says. He will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, we have that in verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43. Six areas that these Jews had been taught religiously that he is going to correct in their presence. And notice what, first of all, what Jesus declares concerning what they had heard. Look at verse 21. You have heard it said, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So he begins and says, you have heard that the ancients were told. Well, who were the ancients? What is he talking about? I don't know what he's talking about. He says the ancients. This speaks of literally the men of old. And in this day, it was really referring to the rabbis or teachers of the past who were often called fathers of iniquity or men of old or men of long ago. It was those interpreters that had been down the line who interpreted the word of God for the Israelites. And it's my, it's my thought in context, and I believe the context will bear witness, that these were the mere externalists who did everything God said on the outside, but still had corrupted hearts. That's who he's talking about. So he says, you've heard it from the ancients. You were told this. But what were they told? What were they told? Verse 21, 
You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Here we have Jesus addressing the current interpretation of the sixth commandment, which was uh, which the scribes and Pharisees had heard and had been teaching. You know, if we look back in Exodus 20, and I'll share this for you, verse 13, we have the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. And within that, uh, they were also taught with this, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Shall be liable to the court. Now, we need to differentiate before we get into this deeper There's a difference, biblically speaking, between murder and killing. Murder is a crime. It is the taking of a life, one who is in God's image, without just cause. We also need to recognize that this Old Testament in Scripture had, had provisions for justified or accidental killing, which was not murder. And as we're going to see later on, Scripture makes it clear that capital punishment, the just war, self-defense, and an accidental homicide are not seen as murder and thus do not require capital punishment. Now concerning murder, it is a heinous offense. We see this first and foremost when Cain slew his brother Abel, right? Right away we see the heart of man in the beginning of mankind. And at the same time, we see in the time of Noah that the whole earth was full of violence. And after the flood, God gives instructions. And we see this, this, this heart of violence and what God said needs to be done for that. Look at Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. The Lord God says, And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will acquire it, and from every man and from every man's brother, I will acquire the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man's blood shall be shed. By his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And clearly later on, if you look up at Exodus 35, there were provisions for the situation of murder. They were to be put to death. Look at uh, Exodus 35, verse 16. Exodus 35, 16. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone in, stone in the hand... Which is, which, by which made him die. As a result, he died. He is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden object in the hand by which he may die, and as a result, he died. He is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger shall put himself, shall put, excuse me, the murderer to death. He shall put to death, death when he meets him. The reality was the punishment for Murder was death, was death. And so Jesus now reiterates what these Jews had been taught back in our passage. He says, you have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. That's the sixth commandment. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now this term liable to the court actually means subject to judgment or guilty before the court. Now, when I studied this text, I, 
I, I was dismayed because in the NASB, it says here, liable to the court here. But if you look down at verse 22, where it says, shall be guilty before the court, it's the exact same phrase. And I think the term shall be guilty before the court is much more uh, valid here. So why do I share this? Well, you might think the, 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 the Pharisees were lessening the punishment. It's not true. They were saying, hey, you commit murder, you're, got, you're guilty before the court. You're, you're, you're to be put to death. That's basically what they were saying, okay? So then on a surface level, it doesn't appear to be anything wrong with what these Jews were being taught. It seems to be biblical. So what is Jesus' issue with this? What does God say concerning it? Notice in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You see, what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, you've been taught this, and that's true. But I need to share something that is associated with this. This was true also. He says here, but I say to you, here we have the Lord Jesus, the great I am, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, in their midst, God telling them what he says about it. You have heard this, but I say to you, they had God in their midst, human flesh, in human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You have heard through your teachers based on ancient traditions that you're not to murder, and if you do, you're guilty to the court. But that is not the complete story. That's not the complete story. You see, as we're going to find, externalists only take certain portions. They never get to the heart of the issue. And Jesus is going to get to the heart of the issue. He's going to get to the heart of the issue. Uh, but I say to you. Now let's not forget who Jesus is dealing with here. These Pharisees and Sadducees, as I've shared, were externalists. They were pros in keeping the external portions of the law. But yet their hearts had not been changed. And I bet if you met one of these Pharisees, uh, you would recognize they've never committed murder. They've kept this command. And they were probably pretty proud about that. But Jesus confronts their external interpretation, which is correct, with a heart understanding of this particular commandment. But I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The God of the universe says, you are guilty enough to die for murder if you are angry. If you are angry. So he says here, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The term guilty means subject to judgment. If you are angry at your brother, you are subject to judgment. And this must have knocked these Pharisees off their rockers because he goes beyond the external action with Jacob say, hey, I've never done that. I've never murdered anybody. To the motive behind those actions which is anger with someone's brother. Well, who were the brothers here? They were Jews, other Jews in covenant with the Lord. They were the community in which they lived, in which they all claimed to follow the Lord. You have heard it said, but I say to you, you've only heard half the story. You've heard the external interpretation, which is true, yet there is much more to it, that everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty. Now the term used for anger here is uh, a term to describe the emotion of anger. It's an emotion that we all have experienced. It arises from the heart. 
There are a few different terms in the scripture that describe anger. One is thumos, which speaks of this upsurge of anger, this wrath. And there's another, another term called orge, and it speaks of that settled condition of smoldering bitterness. Anger, right? That settled condition. And here he says, uh, but anyone who is orgizomai with his brother, he is guilty. And it's interesting. It's a present passive participle. Well, what does that mean? It's an ongoing action that you have anger towards a brother, but it's in a passive voice. Anger comes upon us, folks, by the way. Something happens, and all of a sudden, we respond to it. And we can either deal with that, as we will see rightly, because of a God who enables us to do so, or we will be guilty before him. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. Now you say, well, is anger a sin? Is it always a sin? Because I, I know that God gets angry. Is he sinning? Well, of course not. What's being said here very clearly is that anger and results to one's brother in the context of a relationship with the Lord, that's what they're saying, renders you guilty. 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 But is all anger sin? Well, we know from Scripture that Jesus became angry and he didn't sin. He cleansed the temple, John 2 and Matthew 21. But before we run out and say anger is okay, we need to remember that he was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So since Jesus did not sin but became angry, can we get angry and not sin? Well, the reality is there are times where we have some justified anger, but we cannot handle it for more than a moment. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Folks, I believe we need to see anger for what it really is. When you are irritated at someone for some situation, whatever it might be, it is a dangerously horrible thing. It leads to murder from the heart, as we're going to see. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Sometimes there are situations that come upon us that cause us to be angry. Sometimes righteously, often not righteously. And the Lord God says, be angry, but do not sin. And how would I sin if I kept being angry? If I kept being irritated? It says, do not let it go, the sun go down on your even alongside anger. By nighttime, you better not even be irritated concerning the circumstance. Or you give the devil literally a place or an opportunity. Even when justified, as we're going to see, anger is, has no place in the believer's life. No place in the believer's life. We need to let it go and let God take care of those things. James writes, But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And you will find in the midst of difficulties and relationships that underneath somewhere, somebody got angry about something. Somebody got irritated about some person that did something for some reason or hasn't done something or whatever it might be. You don't want to give Satan a place because what happens then, we start to think like Satan, who is a murderer. Guess what? He's a murderer. Now we're angry. We're like murderers, right? We're now dividing. Very serious thing. We are commanded as believers to let it go, as we're going to see. And if you don't think that's the case, look down a little farther in Ephesians, verse 31. If you think you can validate anger or being irritated at anyone for any reason, 
Any reason at all. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness, not half of it, not part of it, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. There is no room in the true believer's life for any anger. Put it all away. And then what do you do instead? Hold them to account for what they've done. No. And be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Instead of being angry, put it aside. Be kind-hearted. You can only do that if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. We're going to see that non-believers don't have the power over anger, but God can change that. He can save you. He can save you. You know, the Old Testament gives many passages about anger, and I want to go through some of them. And it's sad that we don't pay attention at times, and we allow this destructive, deadly emotion to live in our hearts towards one another at times. Very serious thing. Look in uh, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. We have so many passages we think justify our actions when they don't at all. We're going to see over and over again the scripture talks about letting things go, concealing a transgression, letting things go by, forgiving, love covering a multitude of sins. But look at anger right here. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. If you are slow to anger, that is an evidence you are understanding the truth of God. In the context are you fear the Lord. You fear the Lord. But he who is quick-tempered exhibits folly. Now we're going to see that all of us before Christ were quick-tempered. All of us were slaves to anger. Every single one of us. And Jesus is the only one who can set us free. Look at Proverbs 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up what? Strife. And what does it say here? But the slow to anger pacifies contention. You know, if you have little babies and stuff, what does a pacifier do? They're all happy, right? The slow to anger pacifies contention. Chapter 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. We need to allow God's word to help us see things rightly so that we let go of anger when we are confronted with situations. Proverbs 19.11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. You recognize the truth. You understand you're discreet. You understand the truth. He says here, And it is to his glory to overlook a transgression. We're going to see over and over again, God says, let stuff go, forgive, overlook, rather than go out and make them deal with this sin. Now, certainly there are sins that need to be dealt with, and we'll talk about that. But it's always from the perspective of winning and loving and caring, not trying to address something that happened to me or you. He says here, it is is to his glory to overlook a transgression, to let it go. Look at uh, Proverbs 29, verse 8. Scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. 
Proverbs 19, 19, going back. A man of great anger shall bear the penalty. For you, if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Proverbs 22, 24. Do not associate with a man given to anger. That means given over to it. He says here, excuse me, or go with a hot-tempered man, lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Proverbs 29, 22. An angry man stirs up strife. A hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Proverbs 30, 33. For the churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing of blood and the pressing of the nose brings forth blood. So the churning of anger produces what? Strife. You want to look at where strife comes from? It comes from our own desires. We don't get our way. Whatever. We get angry. Someone may be as truly wrong as whatever it is. But the fruit of that is strife. Is strife. Ecclesiastes 7.9 Do not be eager to be angry Excuse me, do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Don't be eager. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Anger resides in the heart of non-believers. Now, non-believers can act like they're not angry, but internally, they get angry. Before I came to faith, I was an angry man on the inside. If someone didn't do something that I liked, I got angry. All of us have done that. All of us have sinned. And we all are tempted now to sin also, and we all do sin. We are tempted to be angry, but God has told us and warned us concerning this. Now, in these situations that we see here, I've seen a sad thing happening where people prone to self-righteousness don't forgive, but express their anger in self-righteous shunning or separating. We're to forgive. We're to forgive. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook a transgression. You know, I find so often, I've seen it around here, that Matthew 18 is quoted so much. Well, they sinned against me. I need to go do Matthew 18. That's, Matthew 18 is for a brother in continual, habitual sin where every fact can be confirmed and the first two steps are not shunning. They are winning your brother by sharing the truth and it is only till they are put out of the church that we treat them as unbelievers. If anger is behind your Matthew 18, you are in trouble because there are many passages that say, let it go, forgive, forgive. Someone has treated you wrongly, let it go, let it go. Anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. Take a look at uh, Colossians chapter 3. There are so many passages about letting things go, and we're going to see it today about being reconciled. If we have an attitude that every time anyone sins, has done something, we've got to do Matthew 18, we are sorely wrong. It's not possible in light of the rest of Scripture which says, let things go. There are all kinds of things that we will do. People will say something, make a commitment, they will follow through. They will say, they'll hurt your feelings, whatever it is. Lots of those things. You don't go out and do Matthew 18 on those things. You let it go. But there is a time where there are certain things that God shares in His Word for the good of those people we need to do. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. 
Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For on account of these things, the wrath of God will come. And in them you once also walked, and when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and its evil practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the true knowledge of him, according to the likeness of the one who created him. And if you look down a little farther in verse, in verse, uh, in verse 12, it says, And so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, Someone doesn't keep their commitment, you forgive them. You say, bro, that wasn't good, but I forgive you. Someone doesn't say something that is kind to you, you forgive them. You let it go. You love them, right? Heart of compassion, bearing with them, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then beyond that, put on, as we see, love. What about Ephesians chapter 4? We saw that already. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Anybody done something that has hurt you? Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. It is a glory to overlook a transgression. We're going to see there needs to be reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now again, for those ongoing horrific, ongoing, continual, habitual sins to which every fact may be confirmed. Those situations, that's what Matthew 18 is talking about. That's where we would go to those people and we would share with them the truth of God to win them, not in anger, not in malice, but to win them that they might see things rightly. So back in our passage, back in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. If you are angry at your brother, you're guilty of murder. That's what Jesus is saying. If you become angry at your brother, at the heart of murder is anger. It's a very serious thing. If you're angry at someone for what they've done to you, whether it's valid or not, you're guilty. You're guilty. It's a very serious thing. And he's going to share in a little bit what we need to do if these things have happened. What we need to do as brothers and sisters so that we would be reconciled. You see, the reality is that the Lord Jesus addresses the heart. He would say, I would never murder anybody. But Jesus says, you're guilty if you've been angry. You're guilty of murder. Have you ever been angry at anybody? I have. Guilty. Guilty. But as we're going to see, God is gracious and he sent his son to bear our sins in his body on the cross. So notice, he's going to give some illustrations now of how anger comes out in very menial ways. In menial ways that they could see. Notice in verse 22, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Notice what he says here. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka. 
shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. What's he talking about there? Well, I don't know what this term raka means. Well, I do, but I mean, I, I didn't before I studied it. The term raka was a verbal insult of the day. It was something that kind of, you know, saying, you know, numbskull or empty head. It was a very, very sideline comment. Something that was not very strong in its, in its comment. And they didn't consider it as being wrong. Ah, oh, look at that guy's blowing it. He's a numbskull. You know what I'm saying? They're saying, if you have that attitude to even say something that lightly about somebody, you're guilty. You're guilty. You see, I don't think we recognize when we're angry at times at people. And what he says here is you are guilty before the Supreme Court. Now he ups the ante here. The Supreme Court was the 70, that's the Sanhedrin. They were those who determined capital punishment for the most serious crimes in Israel. You think only the act of murder renders you guilty? No, it's the anger behind it, which can be even recognized with a small verbal insult. And notice he, he says, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell. This is Jesus speaking here. Now let me clarify something. Um, he's not saying that the author of Proverbs who calls people foolish is guilty of this. God is the author and he is sharing and he is the one who can share who is a fool and who isn't. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God shares that. But when we take on that, Jesus even told those people on the road to Emmaus, you, you foolish, call them foolish, because they didn't believe the scriptures. God can say that because God is sinless. But here the example is, if you are saying to somebody, you fool, what is the way is he treating me this way? Whatever it is. If you have that level of verbal response something's going on in your heart that is much deeper he says here shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell you know most of us when we're angry don't run out and murder someone but there are many culturally acceptable ways or spiritually acceptable ways to treat people differently when we're angry at them whether it's shunning them or treating them differently not ignoring somebody whatever it might be it's not right saying raka, you fool, whatever it might be. Even these small manifestations are evidences of something that makes you guilty enough, as he says here, for fiery hell. Fiery hell. You know, I could give a bunch of illustrations of how our anger becomes manifest apart from the actual act of murder. And Jesus goes to these very light illustrations of a very subtle insult. You see, there is the reality of hell for murderers. Look at the end of verse uh, 2022. He says, uh, And whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. The term fiery hell is Gehenna. It spoke of a garbage dump on the side of of edge of Jerusalem in which people would throw their trash, and it was a constant burning fire. And Jesus uses this word to describe the reality of hell, and there is a hell. And it was prepared not for mankind, but for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25. And God alone is the one who has the authority to cast anyone into hell or not. Take a look at Luke chapter 12. Brothers and sisters, we should not hold anything against anybody, ever. 
And it is only when it rises to the level of every fact confirmed in a very serious, ongoing, habitual sin that is evident that we go to win somebody, hopefully. We don't go there to shun somebody. We go to win somebody. We go to win them with kindness and grace and mercy and goodness. Luke chapter 12 Verse 4, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no, no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one whom after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. God alone has the, the authority to cast into hell. And based on our response to Jesus Christ, you see, all of us have sinned. All of us have been angry. All of us are guilty of that. And God was gracious to send his son to bear our sins in his body on the cross, to pay the penalty for all of our sins. And if we are willing to humble ourselves and acknowledge, Lord God, I have sinned against you. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. He'll forgive us of that. And he will enable us to turn away from that anger and to confess it when we fail and to be reconciled when we're in the midst. Look at Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. This is in the midst of what God will do to those who have rejected Christ. It's the reality. Revelation 14, verse 9. This is having rejected him in the tribulation. He says, And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand... He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be, look at this, tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. He says, And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. And then go down a little farther in Revelation 21, verse 7. You see, if you've been angry, you're guilty. You're guilty. A fiery hell. Because it's the heart of murder. And yet God is gracious to have brought forgiveness if you're willing to accept it. Revelation 21, verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and what? Murderers. Murderers. And immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Their part will be in the lake of fire, which lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Murderers, we've all been angry. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have you ever been angry at anybody? Whether it's righteous or unrighteous, doesn't matter. Are you angered at someone right now? Didn't treat you right? Did something that you didn't like? Whatever it might be. Then in God's eyes, you are guilty of murder. And the sentence is death. Eternal death. Torment and fiery hell. Well, what are we to do? What are we to do if we're guilty of this? Notice what Jesus says. Back in our passage in Matthew. Jesus addresses what the heart of one who is right should do which is an evidence that you had a changed relationship. Notice what he says in verse uh, 23. 
If therefore, now this is connected to this idea of anger and just even someone saying, ah, Raka, you fool, whatever. Just having just that manifestation, just so small of a manifestation of anger. He says, if therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you. And it's very interesting, he says, it from the other perspective. You're not even seeing yourself, but you're knowing someone has something with you. Notice that. Leave your offering there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled with your brother. Then come and present your offering. If therefore, in light of the serious consequence of anger towards a brother, what should you do? Should you go present your sacrifices according to the law? And that's what this is speaking of. Let's say I've got issues with somebody. Okay, I want to take care of this. I'll go present a sacrifice. He's saying deal with the heart by dealing with the person. You see, the hypocrisy of this day was you could have all kinds of issues towards people and then you could just go do your religious thing and be good to go. And he's saying no, no. If therefore you are presenting an offering at the altar and it comes to mind that your brother has something against you. It may not be your fault. It may be your fault. But because anger is serious and at the heart of it is murderous sin, stop the external religious activity and be reconciled. Be reconciled. You see, the Jew of this day thought if there was anything wrong, they just needed to make a little sacrifice and everything was good. But that misses the heart issue. And Jesus says, go and be reconciled. Stop what you are doing and be reconciled. Then present your offering. This term reconciled is a very interesting term because it's a command by God. He's not suggesting this, by the way. It's a command. It's not a suggestion, but it's in a passive voice. Allow it to happen. Allow it to come about. The term speaks of mutual concession after mutual hostility. Mutual concession after mutual hostility. There is a coming together and conceding on things to bring about reconciliation. Rather than a, you did this and this and this, you need to be held accountable for that. No. And I've told you there's a certain instance where that is appropriate when it is severe, ongoing, unconfessed sin that continues and is visible, every fact. But here, he's saying be reconciled. Do what you can do to humble yourself, to address the problem, to bear responsibility, confess sin, to seek to restore the relationship that is broken. That is broken. One pastor writes, obviously we cannot change another person's heart or attitude, but our desire and effort should be to close the breach as much as possible from our side and to hold no anger ourselves, even if the other person does. Regardless of who is responsible For the break in relationship, and often there is guilt on both sides, we should determine to make a reconciliation before we come to God to worship. A mutual concession. You know one way we can reconcile? We let it go. Yes, they sinned against us. We let it go. We talk to them and say, hey, here's a situation. No, I don't agree. That's this. You know what? Let's just let it go. Let's let it go. Let's, Let's walk together in the Lord. I'm not going to argue, well, you, did, you said this, and you said this and this. No. You let it go. You let it go. Jesus says, be reconciled. It's a command. 
Be reconciled. There's a great principle here. Don't dare go through the religious emotions, come to church, whatever it is, if you have an issue with a brother or sister in Christ. Now we're going to see, you know, we, we can't change someone's heart, but we can make conciliations to try to be reconciled. We can forgive areas that, that people have wronged us, whatever it is. We can be reconciled. We can let it go. I no longer hold it. To forgive means to let go. I no longer hold it against you. How many times should I forgive my brother? There are a lot of unreconciled brothers and sisters walking in the context of the heart of murder, by the way. And I've seen, sadly, many who think they've been sinned against go right to Matthew 18, inevitably with the wrong attitude. Out of hurt, anger, not out of love for the good for that person. Matthew 18 is the last resort for a brother and sister in continual, habitual, verifiable, every fact confirms sin with witnesses, not for the ongoing failures we experience in relationships every day. Love covers a multitude of sins. When you're thinking of Matthew 18, you better have exhausted every other passage that talks about letting things go. Let's take a look at some of those again. Proverbs 19, verse 11. Let's turn there. You see, if you take it literally, okay, they sinned, I got to do this, then you're missing all the rest of Scripture. You're missing the heart of the Lord for us to be reconciled and walk rightly, to let things go. God is a gracious God. I am so glad He is not like us at times. He is a gracious God. And he forgives. We've all failed too. Look at uh, Proverbs 19.11 again. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Yes, they didn't keep their word. Yes, they didn't do this or that. Overlook it. Overlook it. Be reconciled. Make a conciliation. Be gracious. First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, for love covers what? A multitude of sins. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Let it go. First Thessalonians chapter 5, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Never repay evil for evil. We saw Ephesians already. Let all bitterness, anger, morale, clamor, slander be put away along with all mouths. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God and his beloved children. Walk in love. Let it go. Colossians, we saw this already. If anyone has a complaint against anyone, just as God forgave us, so also should you. If you remember someone has something against you, you remember that, or you have something against them, be reconciled. Make conciliations on both sides in the context of letting love cover a multitude of sins. Let's move past this. We don't agree. I love you. Let's go forward. Don't hold on to stuff. Don't hold on to stuff. Mutual concession after mutual hostility. Back to our passage in Matthew. If therefore, understanding the seriousness of anger, 
You are presenting your offering at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you. Leave your offering before the altar. Go your way. First, be reconciled. Allow, it's passive, allow reconciliation to take place. Then come and present your offering. Above all, be reconciled. Forgive, let go. Then worship the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we failed. Some of you failed greatly. We failed. I failed. Just confess and you're forgiven. Be reconciled to your brother or sister. Don't hold anything against them for anything. Now, certainly there are situations in Scripture that are very clear concerning divisiveness and other things where God gives you clear, specific things. I'm talking about the interactions that we have as brothers and sisters every single day where we are going to fail one another. We're not going to do what we said. We're going to misspeak. Whatever it might be, be reconciled. Now, notice there's one last um, illustration that Jesus gives in our passage in verse 25. And this, this, some people think this is on its, independent on its own. I look at it, I go, no, it's, it's with this. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law, verse 25, while you are with him on the way, in order that the opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. Jesus gives another illustration, which seems odd. But he's saying, make friends with your opponent in law. What's the context here? Remember, if therefore, if you've been angry, if therefore, then be reconciled. Be reconciled. Right? In the context here, the way you could resolve legal issues in this culture was you could actually get together in advance before you go to court. You could go try to resolve it. You could come together and say, let's work this out. Let's work out the situation. It means there's conciliation, by the way. Let's work this out. But if you're unwilling to work it out, guess what happens? It goes to the court, to the judge, and then there's a sentence. And guess what? You're thrown into prison, and you won't come out of there. What's the illustration? Now, the term um, make friends here is probably not the best translation. It actually, the Greek word actually speaks of come to an agreement. Come to an agreement. Settle the matter. He's saying you better get reconciled quickly before you come to the judge. If you don't, you're going to go to prison until you paid every cent for what you've done. The implication is if you're not willing to be reconciled, anger is underneath this and you're going to pay every cent. That's the implication. You better get reconciled. Friends, if you're not reconciled with the Lord... You're going to pay every cent. You see, when we're angry, we're guilty. And yet Jesus died for our sins. And you can be forgiven. I believe the heart of this passage is reconciliation based on issues of anger that caused separation in relationships. I tell you right now, if you've been angry with someone, you're a murderer. And you're guilty. And you'll pay the full price. No attempt to cleanse your heart will, will do it unless you go to Jesus and he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you for your anger and he'll cleanse you and he'll enable you to walk rightly. Some of you are covering your anger with religiousness. Maybe Matthew 18 is your validation, but you know your heart is not right. You're not forgiving. You're not kind. You're not gracious. You're not 
making conciliations to reconcile. Repent and be reconciled. Let it go. Forgive. Or maybe it's an evidence that you are a hypocrite on the way to hell. I began speaking of the murder rate in America. And I hope today that you've all seen, and I've seen that we are all murderers at heart. When we are angry with one another, we are committing a very evil, evil thing. We are murderers. And God is gracious. He sent his son to pay the penalty for us. And maybe you realize today that you're guilty before God because you've been angry. You're guilty. And yet the good news is Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. He rose from the dead and you can trust in him and be forgiven. Lord Jesus, I'm an angry murderer. I deserve hell. I thank you for taking my punishment on a cross. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. What about us believers? We have been redeemed from our murderous thoughts and actions. We have been forgiven. The penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ. Praise him and thank him. Yet how do we deal with anger? We saw so many passages about letting it go, trusting God, forgiving over and over again. It is a glory for a man to overlook a transgression. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that this body would be one that is reconciled in in the midst of all the little things that arise between us as we sin against one another on a daily basis, that we would be those who obey this command and make mutual conciliations for reconciliation, that we would hold nothing against anybody. And Lord, if our lives exhibit that we are through maybe the slightest attitude, as we saw even with these Pharisees, the slightest insult, whatever it might be, that we would see our guilt and confess it. Lord God, protect us from the, the horrible sin of anger towards one another. I pray that we would give it up quickly to you, confess, and that we would walk in a way that is glorifying to you. And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. Lord, they know they've been angry, they know they're guilty, and they know that Your word says the wages of sin is death. But I pray they would know the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And they turn to Jesus with a humble heart. Forgive me, Jesus, and be set free and cleansed of all sin that we would rejoice together. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.